Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn. this entire podcast series, I interviewed dozens of people, and I asked everyone that I spoke with what their favorite cartoon character was, and I got one answer over and over and over. Like Bugs Bunny is my all-time favorite character. Do I have a favorite character? Well, my my go-to answer is Bugs Bunny. I love Bugs Bunny. I mean, hands down, Bugs Bunny. That's right, Bugs Bunny. You've ruined my pipes. Bugs Bunny was my favorite cartoon as a kid because I was a kid in the 70s and it's one of the best cartoons of all time. You know, it's funny that when I first took the job at Cartoon Network, I almost didn't get the job because in every interview, I would disparage Hanna-Barbera cartoons (laughs) at the expense of Bugs Bunny cartoons. And I'm like, they're just inferior. But I somehow got the job. Yes, Bugs Bunny cartoons, the best. That was Michael Oline, chief marketing officer for Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, and Boomerang Networks, and the creator of Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. And his loyalty and admiration for Bugs mirrors that of animation fans around the world. More than any other character, it seems, Bugs has an appeal that's impossible to deny. Ah, my public. How they love me. I have to confess my own bias here. Bugs was my first crush. As a kid, I remember thinking that life would be dreamy if I could just spend it adjacent to someone with Bugs' sardonic wit and mercurial intellect. Watch me pace this pathetic palooka with a powerful, paralyzing, poific peccadoimus percussion pitch. And as an adult, I love Bugs. When my husband and I got married, we had a still from the Rabbit of Seville, one of Bugs's great operatic turns on our wedding invitations. Welcome to my shop. Let me cut your mop. Let me save your crop. Dinkily, dinkily, hey. 
At the end of the showdown between Bugs and Elmer in that cartoon, Bugs catches his enemy off guard by proposing, and Elmer was really quick to jump into a wedding dress. And of course, this cast me in the rather unflattering role of Elmer Fudd, but I did not mind. You know, I believe this fella is a R-A-B-B-I-T. But why do I and so many of the people that we talk to and countless others that we haven't talked to feel such an affinity for a wisecracking rabbit? What is it about Bugs Bunny that makes him so appealing? To think about that, we have to first look at Bugs' beginnings. He first appeared in a short titled Porky's Hare Hunt in 1938, directed by Ben Hardaway, whose nickname was Bugs. And at that point, the character wasn't Bugs Bunny. He was actually called Happy. It is definitely a very different rabbit in the beginning, both in the way he was drawn and in the way he acted. He laughed like Daffy Duck, and his energy was a lot more frenetic. I talked about early bugs with Eddie Von Mueller. Eddie is an animation historian, and he teaches at Emory University. One thing that I've always found fascinating, and it's just personal observation, is that bugs evolved from being lots of round shapes to having a more pointed face. Yeah. Almost at the same time, his vocal characterization went from being a little dopier to being a really sharp wisecracker. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And it's also over the same period that he goes from being kind of a generic cartoon bunny to something much more recognizably him, even though he's almost an infringement of copyright on the character Max Hare from Disney's Tortoise and the Hare. But he, you're right, he undergoes this evolution and those big round shapes. Those big round shapes are easy to draw and they're generic. If you If you were to take a a bunch of, say, cartoon cats, cartoon mice, and cartoon rabbits by all the different studios from, say, 1924 probably until the mid-1930s. Other than the shapes of the ears, they're all the same animal. It's just these big, loose curves with the kind of spaghetti noodle rubber band arms, right? Why you? Hey, no! As the rabbit evolved, he looked proportionately more and more like an adult human, which is why the audience never really fears his eventual enemy, Elmer Fudd. Hi, neighbor. Oh, hello. Elmer looks and acts like a toddler, so he isn't perceived as a real threat to Bugs, who is much savvier. Hey, there's something awfully scooey going on around here. The first time Bugs Bunny appeared by that name was in a cartoon called A Wild Hare in 1940. And that short really sets up the relationship between Bugs and Elmer. The first dialogue spoken in it is... Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting rabbits. That cartoon is generally considered to be the true birth of Bugs Bunny. It was the first time the great voice actor Mel Blanc voiced Bugs. 
What's up, Doc? And it was directed by Tex Avery, who is one of the talents credited with steering the direction of Warner Brothers animation during its early years. Avery worked for Leon Schlesinger, who put together a team of animators and directors that would become legendary. Fritz Freeling, Jack King, Bob Clampett, Sid Sutherland, Chuck Jones, and Virgil Ross were all headquartered in a bungalow nicknamed Termite Terrace due to its bug problem on the Warner Brothers lot. And as bugs developed, that team worked to outdo one another on each project, each director and animator striving to make their own mark on the character. What resulted was, as Eddie Von Mueller explains, a comedy that was unique for cartoons. Because when I think about my favorite Bugs cartoons, many of my favorite moments aren't about the visuals, which are often wonderful. It's about the great writing. And we don't really think about the writers of these cartoons so much, but but these are incredibly sharp, witty guys. And that kind of fast-talking, wise-cracking, verbal wit, that's a terrain that Bugs Bunny owns. There are no other great sort of wits in early animation. Not not Betty. Betty's Betty's delightful, but Betty's a dingbat and a foil for comedy going on around her. Not not Mickey. Um that's Bugs. Bugs Bugs is the totem animal of every class clown. I'll die No I'm too young to die please please let me in Hey, this scene ought to get me the Academy Award. That Bugs Bunny wit was so sharp in part because the cartoons he was in weren't written for kids, but for everyone. Say goodbye to Uncle Louie for me. The important thing to remember about all of these great cartoons of the 30s and 40s and 50s and into the 60s is that theatrical cartoons were designed for a broad audience that specifically includes adults. So Bugs, and there are other characters that are that are important here. I think Betty Boop is a conspicuous example over at the Fleischer Company. Bugs is an adult, and Bugs is a particular kind of adult. He's a particular kind of adult entertainer. He's kind of a, a vaudeville... Catskills kind of a guy, which means that a Warner Brothers cartoon, especially Bugs Bunny, but many of the Warner Brothers cartoons, a Warner Brothers cartoon is embedded in the real world and real time in a way that almost nothing that Disney did was. So the reason why kids can learn culture from Bugs Bunny cartoons is because that's a deliberate part of the mix. They want the world in caricature to be present in the cartoon. And it it becomes part of their shtick. It becomes part of their their brand. He's he is he's Groucho Marx with bunny ears. Well, like the man says, don't take life too seriously. You'll never get out of it alive. <laughs> That contemporary placement of Bugs in the time in which the cartoons were being made meant that he became part of the cultural consciousness. But the appeal of Bugs Bunny, even those older cartoons, endures to the present day. The reason it's so universal is because the material is absolutely brilliant. The cartoons are brilliant. The music 
is brilliant. The sound effects are brilliant. The way they all work together is brilliant. People wouldn't come back to it over and over if it was not brilliant. And I could not have lasted 28 years conducting it if it wasn't brilliant. That's George Doherty, a producer, writer, director, and conductor. He is the man behind the musical concert Bugs Bunny on Broadway, which later became known as Bugs Bunny at the Symphony and then Bugs Bunny at the Symphony 2. These performances marry live orchestra accompaniment to cartoons shown on the big screen. And the show has traveled the world and played in packed venues. George has been conducting it for nearly 30 years, and he still loves it. I get the most incredible rush, joy, and absolute it's just a magical experience every time still, you know, 28 years into the project. So it's because it is brilliant, for starters. The humor is universal. Um, we don't even translate the cartoons or run subtitles or run, you know, we, we certainly don't dub them because we want Mel Blanks and Arthur Q. Bryant and the rest of the incredible voice talent. We want their original voice performances to, to shine. People love them. But... You know, the dialogue in Looney Tunes is, is really not plot advancing. It's, it's punctuation. A lot of the cartoons don't have a word of dialogue. Of course, even though there are Bugs cartoons without much talking, part of that vaudevillian nature that Eddie mentioned was that incredible wit. Ah, there he is now, my little benefactor. Well... Here I go again with the timid little rabbit routine. It's shameful, but uh, eh, it's a living. Come, little rabbit, come and get your carrot. Bugs is a pro at cracking wise, and those jokes were told by Mel Blanc for a long time as the voice of Bugs. After Blank's death in the summer of 1989, a number of other voice actors have stepped into the iconic role. Did you think a lot about... Bugs's pre-existing sort of huge iconic status before you started speaking as him? Yes. Um, normally I wouldn't do that, but since it was something so iconic, you know, and Mel Blanc was one of my idols. And, um, you know, back in the dark ages, it was guys like him and women like June Foray. Those people lit my world up. It was real foggy and dark in Detroit, you know, back in the 50s. So anytime I heard these voices, I, it was like someone set me on fire. That's voice acting legend Billy West. He has given voices to both Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> you idiots! He played Fry, Dr. Zoidberg, Professor Hubert Farnsworth, and Zap Brannigan on Futurama. Sir, it's not necessary or wise to be naked. <laughs> you sound just like my tennis instructor. And he's the voice of the red M&M. I've had three people try to eat me today. Three. Ooh, lucky penny. Anyway, sometimes I wish I were human. Whoa. In 1996, he voiced Bugs Bunny for the movie Space Jam. Oh, uh, look out for that toy step, Doc. It's a real Lulu. Bugs Bunny? Eh, you were expecting maybe the Easter Bunny? You're a cartoon. You're not real. Not real, eh? Billy talked with me about the way Mel Blanc inspired his career and how Bugs evolved over time. I'd be... You know, like um, 
molecularly torn apart and landed on the floor when I heard their performances. And a lot of times I couldn't tell that it was them doing five and seven other voices. So when I was old enough to read the credits, I would see these names like Dawes Butler and Don Messick and June Foray. But but Mel kind of lit the way for most voice dudes that I know. Pretty much the same story. You were just this kid that was just riveted by the, this magic. And you knew they were adults. You just knew that there was something off. You know, they weren't children. They were wacky adults. And it was like they're doing these silly, amazing things. So I think back then I, I probably made an unconscious decision to want to follow that energy. But Bugs, you know, went through a lot of transitions. It depended on the directors that he had, whether it was Frizz Freeling or Chuck Jones or uh, Robert McKimson, I think. It's like he used to be real wild, and he had a different voice. It wasn't the one that we know. He'd be like, uh, so long, screwy. See you in St. Louis. You know, and it was not quite the bugs. It was a work in progress. So then the one that everybody settled on and the one I decided to do for Space Jam, because every time I did something, somebody would pop their head in the door. He's too Jewish. Oh, really? You know, and then I'd do some more stuff and some other yin-yang would come up the hallway and lean in and go, where's the Brooklyn? I don't hear the Brooklyn. He's a wise ass. You know, I finally was like, eh, shit up. So I started doing it the way I wanted to do. Um, Ain't I a little stinker? Mwah! Oh, fuck. <laughs> Ooh, and I worked in Space Jam, and I got to work with Michael Jordan, too, Doc. <laughs> the closest thing to a religious figure that we have. <laughs> it's obvious that Bugs continues to be a rabbit of the times, but that his appeal stays timeless. The old cartoons could still air at the same time Space Jam was released in theaters, and it didn't seem off or weird. George Doherty offered additional insight into why these cartoons endure. Where there is dialogue, it's, it's very, you know, it's very sparse. The music really carries it from wall to wall. The music is universal. And, you know, everybody knows Rossini and Wagner and Liszt and Tchaikovsky and Strauss and all the, the composers that Carl Stalling borrowed from. And so that makes it universal. Uh, what's up, Doc? Who? France List. Never heard of him. Wrong number. The other reason the cartoons are so universal is that the visuals are absolutely timeless. When you look at most cartoons from the 1940s and 50s, they look really dated from other studios. But these guys were futurists. They were so far ahead of their time. Chuck Jones and the other directors, and Maurice Noble, the background artist who did these almost Van Gogh, Picasso backgrounds, which are just unbelievable. Most importantly, the humor isn't dated. The humor is universal. It is forever. Brilliant humor lasts forever. mentioned a number of composers and artists, and that leads me to what I really want to talk about when it comes to Bugs Bunny. In many ways, he's been a cultural guide, offering kids an introduction into music and art that's relaxed and unpretentious. 
Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he'd put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. <laughs> no. Neither did I. I was just asking. Okay. Come on out. I got you covered. Hi. Surely you're not going to be taken in by that old gag. Isn't she lovely? Even RuPaul has cited Bugs Bunny as an influence, calling the wascally wabbit a life inspiration in a 2013 tweet, thanks to the many times Bugs appeared in drag throughout the years. Out of sheer honesty, I demand that you tell him who you are. Well, haven't you anything to say? Anything? Out of sheer honesty? Yes, I would just love a duck dinner. You're despicable. Most Bugs fans, when you ask what their favorite Bugs Bunny cartoons are, will mention two in particular. The Rabbit of Seville... How about a nice close shave? Teach your whiskers to behave. Lots of leather, lots of soap. Please hold still, don't be a dope. Now we're ready for the scraping. There's no use to try escaping. Yell and scream and rant and rave. It's no use, you need a shave. And what's Opera Doc? Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit? Both of these shorts, directed by Chuck Jones, set the adversarial relationship between Bugs and Elmer on a backdrop of opera. For adult viewers, this adds a fun layer of sophistication to things, but for kids, it's just all part of the rich world of sound and visuals that these characters find themselves in. What have I done? I've killed the rabbit. Poor little bunny. Poor little rabbit. <laughs> I asked George if he's conscious of the fact that his Bugs Bunny at the symphony concerts might be the first time kids are hearing important pieces of classical music. Well, I I am and I'm not. You have to take it at face value. It's just like when I was a little kid on the living room floor watching it. I didn't know it was Wagner. I didn't know it was Rossini. I didn't know it was uh, Franz Liszt. I just knew it was fantastic. So we're not shoving it in their face that, you know, this is opera now, listen to it, because it's opera, you know. We let the kids make the discovery on their own, because how you introduce a child to classical music and opera and ballet is, you know, a really crucial um, step in whether they love it or not. I know people who take their kids to see a symphony concert of Peter and the Wolf, which is one of the perfect, you know, first experiences of symphonic music. No sooner had Peter gone than a big gray wolf did come out of the forest. But I also know people who have tried to take their five-year-old to hear the 
Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, which, well, you know, is something that most people don't acquire a taste for until well into their adulthood. So most kids see a ballet for the first time with the Nutcracker. Which opera kids see first is really, you know, crucial as to whether they end up liking opera or not. We introduce kids to everything in this, you know, two-hour span because they see ballet, they see opera, they hear symphonic music, they see and hear a live world-class orchestra right on the stage, they see Academy Award-winning animation on the screen. So we just give it all to them at the same time. And different kids pick up different things. And different kids come back and ask different questions and are left with different memories. And so I like to present it to the kids that come and see it today in the same way that I was introduced to it all, which was I was able to make my own discoveries. And that's what we want them to do, too. But, you know, because it's so multi-demographic, they're with their parents who love the cartoons and their parents have told them about, about them. And as I said, the adults are laughing at different things. The children are laughing at different things. You know, it's not a kid's concert. It never has been. And Chuck Jones, was he would say over and over again, the cartoons themselves were not created for kids. They were created for everybody. But something that's new now that wasn't the case when we first started in the 1990s was that right now, Bugs and the Looney Tunes are not on Saturday morning. They're not on after school. So unless kids have a great cable package with the Cartoon Network, they aren't as familiar with Bugs as they once were. So in a lot of cases, kids are seeing and meeting Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd for the very first time at our concert. When we first started, they all knew these cartoons very well because they all watched them on Saturday morning and they watched them after school. But now kids have an almost infinite variety of entertainment and other options these days. So uh, a lot of times kids are seeing these cartoons for the very first time and that elicits a whole different kind of a reaction too, which is very fun. I will admit that this information took me by surprise. And the other thing that George surprised me with was this tidbit about just how careful the creators of these cartoons were in depicting the arts realistically. I love the Tom Bunny. Because Chuck Jones studied conducting, studied conducting patterns. So when Bugs conducts in Baton Bunny, any orchestra in the world could just follow him without even me conducting because it's all correct, it's all perfect. The ballet sequence in What's Opera Doc, it's perfect. The theater turned out, the pirouettes are correct, the, the jetés are, you know, technically perfect. The orchestration for what's opera doc is Wagnerian, gigantic. These guys really took their art seriously and their music seriously. So these are cartoons, but there's nothing cartoony about it. There's 
also an interesting morality to Bugs. He only unleashes his cunning on someone after they've messed with him. I have a big soft spot for long-haired hair. It is full of some of my favorite other opera excerpts, and you just have to feel for Giovanni Jones, the pompous baritone. And, you know, Bugs doesn't go after people unless they go after him first. Where do they go when they can't go for a walk? Do they stay home and talk? In that example from Long-Haired Hair, Bugs is playing popular tunes outside the home of opera singer Giovanni Jones. What do they do in Mississippi when skies are drippy? And Jones, irritated with hearing Bugs while he tries to practice, first breaks the banjo that Bugs is playing, then smashes a harp around him. What's up, Jack? Hmm, also a rabbit hater. And then he ties Bugs to a tree by his ears. You know, this means war. Bugs gets his revenge by sabotaging the singer's performance that night, culminating in a finale where Bugs poses as a famous conductor. Leopold! And forces Giovanni Jones to hold a note. that destroys the concert venue. Jackson Public, one of the creators of the Venture Brothers, built on this idea that Bugs works within social conventions to get his revenge. The Warner Brothers stuff played with that a lot, with um, the rules and how you could, like, exploit the rules to hurt your enemy. You know, like, Bugs Bunny's messing with this, like, oh, the opera singer has to do what the conductor says. He's great at turning those things around. I, I never really thought about that, that kind of observation about, like, social constructs and, and societal rules. All played out by a rabbit. Yeah. Sometimes in pants, sometimes not. I'll, yeah. Never in pants, but usually in a jacket. And he's usually the innocent victim mm-hmm. at the beginning. That's why he's better than Woody Woodpecker. Woody Woodpecker's just a jerk. Yes. Usually. And irritating. Usually Bugs is, yeah, somebody crosses a line with him first and he goes, okay. I'm going to destroy you now. <laughs> well, okay, Doc. But always remember, you asked for it. Bugs ties together this sense of rightness and this mix of highbrow and popular culture through humor. And George Doherty has seen how this humor is really the secret sauce that makes Bugs a beloved icon. Because the humor is so universal, 
the audiences, no matter where we're playing, no matter what country we're in, they laugh at almost the same places everywhere. Uh, the one thing that is interesting is that children uh, laugh at certain things consistently all over the world. They laugh at the same things. Adults laugh at the same things, and then they all laugh together at the same things. Because these cartoons are multi-layered. They have a very, very sophisticated humor for adults. For children, they're very slapstick and didactic and colorful, and the kids laugh at the in-your-face stuff. But then there are all these layers of sophisticated wit and humor, not only double entendres, but sometimes triple entendres, and adults laugh at those. And adults who come back many times pick up new ones every time. I'm just surprised that... Well, I'm not surprised. I'm delighted that we are still doing it this long over and over again. I'm not surprised because I've always known that these cartoons were timeless and indelible and brilliant. And that's why other art, whether it's of a comic nature or not of a comic nature, survives for centuries. These cartoons are that same quality of, of art. They are brilliantly timeless. And I have no doubt that when I am long gone, when I've been carried out of some stage door in a pine box feet first, because I, I plan on dropping dead in 30 years, right in the middle of a performance of Bugs Bunny into Symphony 5, or <laughs> Bugs Bunny into Symphony 6, where, wherever we are by that point. But these cartoons will go on for decades and centuries way past, because their humor, their brilliance, and their artistry is absolutely timeless. In 2002, TV Guide named Bugs Bunny as the most popular cartoon character of all time. And part of that write-up read, His stock has never gone down. Bugs is the best example of the smart-aleck American comic. He not only is a great cartoon character, he's a great comedian. He was written well. He was drawn beautifully. He has thrilled and made many generations laugh. Animation historian and producer Jerry Beck shared that same sentiment when we talked. Bugs has led the way for me, uh, literally. I mean, what a great character in every direction. I mean, I people can identify with Bugs, and yet we want to be like Bugs. You know, I think Chuck Jones said that Bugs Bunny is the character we want to be, but Daffy Duck is the character we are. You know, he's a hero. He's talented. You know, he can play piano at the drop of a hat. He can disguise himself in any way. So Bugs has emerged as an aspirational character. He's offered kids of all ages someone to identify with and look up to, an unpretentious entree into the arts, an example of self-possessed identity, and an unwillingness to be pushed around. But as I was talking to Jackson Public about Bugs, I got a wonderful little surprise that really made clear just how vital Bugs Bunny has become to his fans. Do you have a favorite Bugs episode? Ooh, I'm not sure. There's a couple that come back to me once in a while. Actually, I just, every time a package comes for my fiance, I have to go upstairs. Package for Bugs Bunny. Package for Bugs Bunny. And like now we just text each other that soundbite from the cartoon. Uh, there's just like little things that I tick on that I remember all the time. And um, it's not even one of my favorite ones, but it's like there's something so pure about it that says what I love 
so much about those cartoons, which is uh, that one where he's like hassling a couple of hillbillies and he makes them square dance and beat the crap out of each other. Grab a fence post, hold it tight, whomp your butt with all your might. Hit him in the shin, hit him in the head, hit him again, the critter ain't dead. Whop him low and whop him high, stick your finger in his eye, put a little ring, ring, little sound, bang your head against the ground. Like that one, that one's, that one's just so pure and I love it and, um, I have to hold back from doing the call because I know that cartoon so well. Oh. Whirl, whirl, twist and twirl, Girl. jump around like a flying squirrel. Don't you cuss and don't you swear. Step right up and form a square. It's the best. It's so good. I don't know how familiar you are with the movie Hannah and Her Sisters, but like Woody Allen's character in that, he's kind of a side character, but his whole thing is that he's like suicidal at the beginning and he's having a crisis of faith and everything else. And he's like at his bottom point and he wanders into a movie theater doesn't even know what's playing, and he looks up, and it's this scene from Marx Brothers movie where they're just like, "We're going to war." They're going ape, you know. They're like, <laughs> they're jumping around, they're playing people's helmets like drums, and that for him like brings him back to life. You know, he's like, "This is." This is kind of what it's all about. When there's this in the world, how can you be depressed? And, like, that's kind of how I feel about that hillbilly thing. Like, that's my Hannah sisters, Marx Brothers moment. You know, like, I would think about that. Like, after 9-11, I would think about that. And I would go, oh, that's why we're going to be okay. Because, <laughs> like, we have that in our hearts. <laughs> that is a pretty powerful idea. And I doubt that Robert McKimson, the director of Hillbilly Hair, ever thought that the cartoon he made would be the thing that got people through dark and frightening times. But it speaks to how very powerful animation, this shared dream to borrow from Rebecca Sugar, can not just entertain us, but can also give us hope. Well, what did you expect in an opera? A happy ending? Bugs Bunny has also adorned all kinds of merchandise. I myself have a kitchen full of Bugs Bunny wine glasses and plates and other housewares. And our next episode is going to talk all about merchandise. I'm going to talk to people in licensing and across the spectrum of animation production about toys and shirts and all the things that consumers buy with cartoons on them and how licensing works. The most important word in the whole equation is emotion. That emotion might be an identification with a character, a love for a character that a child might have. It might be a trust in a classic consumer brand because, oh, my mother used that brand when I was growing up and, and I really trust that to do the job it's supposed to do. But at the heart of all this is emotion because without that, then why should anybody shell out hard-earned money to buy a product? Special thanks to all of my guests who were on the show today. I am so grateful that they all took time to talk to me about the amazing, delightful, and beloved Bugs Bunny. If you would like to talk to us, you can do so by emailing drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across social media as Drawn Podcast. And you can visit the website drawnpodcast.com to see everything grouped together and also show notes for every one of our episodes. So don't forget, visit us online and subscribe to Drawn Podcast on Apple Podcasts. 